We are back in Luke chapter 7. We have been progressing through uh, this gospel, this, this uh, letter that Dr. Luke writes to his friend Theophilus, and he's writing with the purpose of establishing a foundation for confident faith so that Theophilus and the church at large, his intention is for this to be read among the churches, as, uh, as all of these books were, and he says specifically in chapter 1, I'm writing this so that you may know the certainty. You may know for sure the things that you've been taught. You need to know the truth. Know what you believe and why you believe it, that it is worth believing. Because if you're going to get through this life, you're going to face difficulty and storms. Amen? Amen. And if you're going to survive the storms... You need to have a solid foundation. That foundation has already been laid. The foundation is Christ. There is no other foundation for us. And it has been laid for our faith, as the hymn says, in His excellent Word. So Luke is establishing for all of us, here is where you can set your foot. Here is a strong place to stand. And when things go wrong, you are able to refresh here. You are able to find yourself in Him. Sometimes we can wrestle with our faith. And yet it's not so much our faith as what we put our faith in. Everybody has faith. We talk about it differently, but everybody has faith. You're demonstrating faith right now Faith is trust, right? And you have demonstrated your faith in the chair that you are sitting in right now by sitting in it. Because I don't see any of you clinging to the chairs next to you trying to support yourself because you think that the chair might fall under you. So it's not so much a matter of whether you have faith, but what are you putting your faith in? This is where we run into struggles. When we don't have the foundation of understanding the truth, if we haven't connected the reality of God to the realities of our everyday lives, then this just becomes something we, we do. It's a religion. It's a set of beliefs that we think maybe sounds good, and we go through ritualistic behaviors. We go to church every Sunday because that's what you're supposed to do. But it doesn't change us. We need to dig deeper. That's the entire purpose for Luke writing this gospel. And in Luke chapter 7, excuse me. In Luke chapter 7, we have been seeing Jesus after he delivered his first recorded sermon for us. He's been preaching, but this is the first one we get to read in Luke. And he tells what it's like to live for God, to live the life of a Christ follower. We turn the other cheek. We forgive. We don't get hung up on what we think is real here. We focus on what is real, what God has told us, and we trust what His Word says more than what our eyes see. And because of that, we're able to face persecution and count it as joy. Because of that, we're able to stand in the storm. And Jesus finishes that sermon by saying, look, if you want a foundation, you need to not just hear the word, 
You need to actually do the word. It's interesting that his brother, his half-brother James, in his letter, says the same thing. Be hearers of the word, or doers of the word, not hearers only. This is crucial. Jesus says, this is your foundation. Why? Because if I don't practice it, if I don't stand on it, if I don't demonstrate and test my faith in the chair by sitting in it, if I don't show my faith in the parachute by pulling the ripcord, then I'm not ever going to develop. I'm not ever going to grow. And I'm not going to have a foundation. It'll stay shallow. Then when the storm comes, since I didn't have a foundation, the life that I'm trying to build goes... It's from a song. It goes splat, right? And now, as he's progressing through this, he's given this sermon. He's now come out of that. He's healed a centurion's servant. He's raised a widow's son, her only son, from the dead in the middle of a funeral. That's a little distracting, right? So you've got a funeral, everything's going along as normal, and Jesus raises the son from the dead, upsets the apple cart. It's a good thing, but it's a little shocking. And then after that, he has this awkward question that we dealt with last week. As John the Baptist, the, the forerunner of Messiah, the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets, who has seen the one who has promised. So all of the, the Old Testament prophecies are coming to fruition. He's seeing them being fulfilled. And he's standing alone against a culture that is wayward from God. And he's calling people to repentance. Saying, look, repent. Turn from your way to God's way. The kingdom of God is near. It's the same message, incidentally, that Jesus is preaching when he comes on the scene. More specifically recorded for us in the other Gospels than what we see in Luke. But the, the kingdom is near. Repent. That's Jesus' message. It's the exact same message as John the Baptist. Different approaches. John, as you may remember, is out in... Uh, he's out in the desert. If you want to take a look at uh, Luke 3, you get to see a picture of what John's doing. He's out in the wilderness. He's wearing camel hair clothing. It's not the, the, the normal fashion statement of the day. He's unkempt. He's eating locusts and honey. He's not participating in the normal things of the culture. He stands out. Now Jesus comes along and his approach is different. Jesus is connecting with everybody. He's hanging out with the worst of the worst, the people that everybody else looks down on. That's who Jesus is spending time with. Both of them saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus saying, here, come to me. Let me give you life. John saying, go to him. He's the life giver. And then the question comes, as John is imprisoned and his expectations didn't play out the way he thought, and his question is, Lord, are you really the one? Now John knows. He spent his whole life knowing. And yet he asks, are you really the one? Jesus doesn't try to explain it. He tells the messengers, just go tell John what you've seen. The, the lame can walk, the blind can see, the gospels preached to the poor, the dead are raised. You've seen the prophecies, you've seen the evidence, you'd be the judge. And then he goes on to defend John's doubts, his anxiety, 
Because there's an information gap there, and he says, John is the greatest. Don't you be confused. Everybody's going to ask questions. Everybody's going to have moments. And that anxiety is just a reflection of that. It's not who you are. We're going to pick up right after that in verse 29. But before we do, you can find it so you're ready. Before we do, how many of you remember playing on the playground in elementary school? Anybody? Raise your hand if you can remember that. Some of you, way too old, you can't remember. <laughs> Just kidding. Some of you, like my son, probably were concussed too many times and still can't remember at 21. But as you think back, do you ever remember a time when somebody you were playing with, maybe it was you, wanted to have everything their way? Do you ever play with that kid when you know they're like, "Hey, come play. Let's all let's all play. We're all hanging out. We're playing together." But it has to be their way. It's their rules, and if you break the rules, then they're mad and they're storm. I'm, I'm going to take my ball and go home. Right? You ever ever have those guys? Raise your hand if you've been that guy. <laughs> Look, the thing of it is, we all want our own way, don't we? And we see that with children a lot. Children are often uh, especially when they have a lot of things, when they've got a lot of privilege, they tend to be dissatisfied. And they demand a lot. They expect mom and dad to give them stuff. And if they don't learn to be grateful, then they just want more stuff. And the stuff they get isn't good enough. Look, honey, I got you a brand new bike for your birthday. I wanted a red one. That's blue. Psh, I don't want that bike. Ungrateful, unsatisfied, unyielding in their demands to have their own way. That's a tough thing. How much worse is that in an adult? I think most of us, if we're honest, know adults like that. And maybe far too often we've found ourselves in that place. Maybe we haven't really looked in the mirror hard enough to see it. But for most of us, I think we've been there at various times. Unsatisfied ungrateful, unyielding. We want, but whatever we get, just not enough. It's not quite right. Jesus is talking about the generation of people that, that he's dealing with then, and that's exactly the comparison that he's making here. He's saying, listen, I don't even know how to talk about you people. You're, you're like a bunch of spoiled brats who don't get your way you want to play, but you want to play your game. And if everybody doesn't go along with your game, that's not good enough. And you're dissatisfied because it wasn't according to your expectations. Let's read in the text. After all that has happened uh, with Jesus answering the question of John the Baptist and, and defending him, uh, we're going to start with verse 29 for context. I'm just going to back up to verse 28 for you. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God, the, the least, newest, most vile in their background, born-again believer, who has just in that moment turned their lives over to Christ, is greater than John. They're experiencing what John was pointing to. Then it says, all the people 
Even the tax collectors, that means even, even the avowed sinners, even the ones who are not interested in, in looking good, and the whole community looks down on them. Even them, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they'd been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. <clears throat> Jesus then, in responding to that, says this, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. <clears throat> Excuse me. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, a funeral song, and you did not cry. So he's picturing these kids who are in the marketplace where kids hang out and, and they're playing wedding or they're playing funeral and it's not going their way. They're complaining because it's, whatever happens, whatever we do, if we do it this way, it's not good enough. If we do it that way, it's not good enough. And nothing's really fitting. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking. And you say he's got a demon. That's kind of weird, isn't it? So John the Baptist comes and he's super moral. He's the guy that is not doing anything wrong. He's got a very strict discipline to his life. And the people said, there's something wrong with that cat. He's a religious nut job. He... He's got, he must be oppressed by a demon. There's something not right upstairs. He's got some screws loose. And maybe he should see a counselor or something because that's just, no, uh-uh. That can't be what God wants. John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, came eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Listen, you got this contradiction. You think he's too religious. You think he's too loose. Jesus is too worldly. Now, that seems kind of dumb for us because we are recognizing the reality of... Uh, um, we're recognizing the reality that Jesus is Messiah, but they're not. So as they're dealing with uh, who Jesus is, they're still trying to wrestle with it. They're still finding him as a person. And as they're processing it, they don't know. So that's why people are rejecting it, because he doesn't fit their expectation. Now, if he's Messiah, if he's the Son of God, if he's all that, if he's God's hero, his champion, then shouldn't he look the part? Now, speaking specifically of these religious leaders, he's, he's uh, looking at their rejection of Christ and their rejection of John. And it's tied to their expectations. So their, their beliefs about who Messiah would be didn't necessarily come from Scripture. It came from their own upbringing, their traditions, their own tendency to think this is how the right kind of spiritual person looks. We don't want them to be too spiritual. That's crazy stuff. It must be a demon. And we don't want them to be too worldly. You know, that's clearly you know, licentious. They're, they're not, uh, not really interested in living for God. 
It's interesting how that works because basically anybody who's stricter than me is a legalist. And anybody who's less strict than me, uh, well, psh, man, they're just, they're drunks, they're gluttons, they're, you know, they're worldly. And yet somehow my standard must be perfect, right? Jesus is condemning, he's rebuking them here for this. And then he wraps it up with this thought in verse 35, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. Wisdom is not about the debate. Wisdom is shown in the fruit. Wisdom is shown in the lives of those who live by it. So Jesus, as he's making this point, is establishing a reality. We need to understand that reality and and for our wording today, it's, you know, it's nothing fancy and theological, but hopefully you'll grab it. Hopefully it's something that you can take home and put in your pocket and make it matter for you. Our core reality today is God's plan does not fit in my box. Now there's a whole lot more in this passage, but it all boils down to this. God's plan does not fit in my box. Say that with me. God's plan does not fit in my box. What do I mean in my box? I'm talking about my expectations, the things that I want. When I begin to forge God with my own uh, imagination, I'm creating him in my image. How does that work? Not good, right? That's, that's called idolatry. Now, in olden times or in tribal places even now, we may have little, uh, little sculpted idols that we can physically see and of course, we're too sophisticated for that. We wouldn't worship some idol like that. But we turn God into an idol when we put our box of expectations and try to pack God into it. We're going to try to make God be what we want him to be rather than us getting on board with who he really actually already is. We want God to do what we want rather than getting on board with what he wants. It's kind of like we think God was created for us instead of the other way around. We can't get a hold of what God is doing while we're clinging to our own expectations. God is doing something. And He's doing something that is great, that is powerful, that is eternal. But if you and I are stuck holding on to our own expectations, my hands are already full. And I can't receive from him the reality of what's going on. Jesus' point with these, uh, with these rejectors is pretty clear. As he's going through this, <clears throat> excuse me, he is saying they're missing this. They're missing the gospel. How can I compare? What can I compare this generation to? Look, you know, you saw John, and John came and said, here's the word of God, and here's your life. They don't match. So let go of what you're doing, take hold of God's word. That's what repentance is. I'm going to change my mind so seriously that it's going to change my direction. So John came, and it's not him making stuff up, it's not a new religion, he's just simply saying, look, word of God says this. You're going here. Stop. Repent. 
And the baptism that he did was a symbol of that, to identify with that change of your life. So everyone has the same opportunity to turn from their way to God's way. Because the message is clear. And yet, many of them, specifically as he's pointing out here, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, those who should have known better, they rejected him. They chose not to be identified with going their way instead of God's way. Now, what's extra interesting is that Jesus identifies with that. He didn't have to repent of his sins. He didn't have to turn from anything because he was already going God's way. And he still chose to be identified with repentance in that way. To be, to be identified through baptism with living all in for the Lord. But the religious leaders didn't. It didn't fit their expectations. They thought their religion would carry them. They thought their traditions would be enough. Their understanding, they were wise. And in their wisdom, surely, surely the Messiah doesn't look like that. Surely God can't be offering salvation to those who aren't looking for it. And yet, Jesus looks at him and says, man, you're like a bunch of spoiled brats. A bunch of kids who don't get your way. It didn't fit in your box, so you're going to throw it out. God's plans are bigger than you thought, or different than you thought, or maybe, uh, maybe in your perception smaller, because you're only seeing a little piece of it. Therefore, we're going to reject it. Sad. So, with, if that's Jesus' point, is that they missed it because of their expectations, then how does this work for us? The people of Jesus' own generation missed the reality of the gospel because it didn't fit their expectations. The people of Jesus' own generation missed the reality of the gospel because it didn't fit their expectations. Now, we have our own expectations, our own preferences, our own understandings that, that create issues for us. So if we're going to receive what God is actually doing, we're going to have to let go of some boxes. Here are some boxes that keep me from being satisfied in Christ. This is a good time for me to point out a, a, a quote from John Piper. It, it's the, the central point of his book, Desiring God and... and uh, he has a, he might call it a movement called Christian hedonism. It sounds really scandalous, but really what it's saying is the deepest desire of our heart is God anyway. So if we're really pursuing our deepest pleasure, it's Him. And everything else is an imitation. But the quote is this, that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. And we have a problem with satisfaction. So we've got to ditch some of these boxes. The first one that we can see here is a worldly focus. Worldly focus. Turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. If you're still in Luke, you're going to go to the right. And it's about halfway through what's left of your Bible after that. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. 
And here's what Paul writes to the Colossian church. Now he's writing this to believers. He's writing this to Christ followers. And he says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. Your life is now hidden with God in Christ. When we get focused on the world around us, then we miss out on what is real because we're focused on what seems real. We see everything that's happening now in this physical, temporal realm, and we forget that this is all passing. Or we get sucked into a mindset that says there's, there's nothing more, there's nothing bigger. We've created a, a, an idea of the physical world that worships science. Now, I'm all about science as science actually really is, not the cult of science. What science actually is is a description of how life works. Science never disagrees with Scripture because science never disagrees with reality. The problem is we get away from science and we begin to say anything that I can't understand must not be true. It must not exist. And we get outside of science into a, an atheistic faith. That's a, a phrase worth remembering. An atheistic faith. I don't believe in God, but I believe in this. I believe in this secularist mindset. And it puts me out of step with reality. I have a worldly focus. Um, in the, the book of James, he says, don't you know that... <laughs> Friendship with the, God, with, with the world is really enmity with God. You're choosing all of this stuff. You're choosing to fit in with the world. You're choosing to worship the creation, ultimately, rather than the creator. If you choose to identify primarily with this world, then you're choosing not to identify with God. That happens for Christ followers as well as unbelievers. That's the natural state of an unbeliever. But it happens all the time for those of us who are in Christ. We forget. We see all the stuff going around us and we let our focus be worldly. Isn't that what, what is happening with these uh, folks who are rejecting John? They're, they're looking at him and it's like, oh, wait a minute, that's weird. They're thinking in terms of the world. They look at Jesus and they're like, oh, hey, that, you know, that's not right. But they've gone beyond this. Their worldly focus leans on the next thing, the next box we need to dump, their human understanding. They have to get rid of the box of worldly focus. They have to get rid of the box of human understanding. We live there, don't we? I'd have you look this up, but we've talked about it so many times that hopefully most of you have it memorized. If you if you don't have it memorized, then jot it down so you can get it. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. This is one of the most central passages in Scripture, in my opinion. That's not from the Word. That's my opinion about the Word. It's foundational. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Right? I'm, all my bets are on Him. All the chips are in the middle of the table. There is nothing else. It's only Him. I'm trusting in Him with all my heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. 
In all your ways, submit to him, and he'll make your path straight. Now, why is that important? Because my understanding is limited. I can only see this much. And even if I could see everything, I can still only see this much. Because I can only see in my time from the perspective that I've been raised. That's why it's so difficult for us when we try to evaluate history based on the standards of our own lives, of our own culture, our own zeitgeist, if I can use that term. We think a certain way. So then things that are normal for us today don't fit what was normal 100 years ago or 50 years ago or 20 years ago. So terms that might be considered offensive today, we see them in Mark Twain's writings or so on. It's an entirely different understanding. The world is perceived differently based on where we are. Our human understanding is always limited. On top of that, God, who is infinite, sees everything. Not just in a particular time, but from time immemorial to time yet unseen. He knows it all. He exists outside of what we see. And God controls it. He's sovereign. What God knows, God's opinion, if you will, is always reality. My opinion is not. The only reason my opinion matters is because it determines what I'm going to do about God's opinion. Otherwise, who cares what I think? It just doesn't matter. Lots of people, if you, if you watch uh, you know, cable TV or you listen to talk radio, if you listen to sports talk radio, which I love and also I have, I've yell at a lot. Um, everybody's got an opinion. You've got to spend 24 hours on the radio talking. You're going to come up with a lot of things to say. And about a quarter of it might make sense. Because we're limited. God knows the reality of it. We can't try, we can't be satisfied if we are judging the world or judging what God is doing based on our human understanding. We have to get rid of that box. If we're focused on the world around us, if we're taking all that in, and if we are focused only on what we can conceive of, what we can, can wrap our minds around, we are going to be dissatisfied. Third box we need to drop. Our personal expectations. Our personal expectations. These people are like children who are playing and, and complaining and ungrateful and unsatisfied and unyielding. And we're like that a lot because we expect it to be a certain way. Life has to follow certain rules. And if it doesn't, then we don't know what to do. And our minds spin out of control and we get very agitated. And it creates an anxiety for us. We talked about those knowledge gaps last week. But when we, when we think that life is going to fit our expectations, we are bound. We are destined to be disappointed and disillusioned. We're going to have our hearts broken because life isn't controlled by you. It's not. That was really hard for me to come to terms with because <laughs> I really felt like somehow I ought to be able to control the universe. 
I mean, ultimately. If you all would just do what I want, stop getting on my nerves all the time, life would be good. If people would listen to me at work, anybody ever feel that way? Everything would be better. But life isn't that way. You could be 100% right. You could absolutely be right. Maybe they should all be listening to you. But guess what? They're not gonna. We have to let go of that box of our personal expectations or we're going to live in that frustrated place of disappointment and disillusionment regularly. And what ends up happening then is we start to look at God as a failure because God doesn't meet our personal expectations. But guess what? He never promised to. Check this out. Look at, look at the book of Job. Where's Job? It's back toward the middle, right before you get to the Psalms. So if you open your Bible to the middle, <clears throat> excuse me, then you find the book of Psalms, or probably in that neighborhood, depending on your Bible. <clears throat> and then back up right before that to the book of Job. Now, most of us are familiar with the story of Job. In case you're not, let me catch you up. Job was probably written during the early times of Genesis, probably before Abraham. Uh, we don't know for sure, but that's where most scholars will place it is early, early, early. And Job is the most righteous man on earth. This is, this is the guy who is always doing right. God is favoring him, and he's wealthy, and he's got a big family, and everything has gone well for him. And the devil shows up in this cosmic conversation with the Lord, and, and God says, hey, how about Job? Job's awesome. Job follows me. He listens, he obeys, he trusts me. He does everything that I require. And the devil says, of course he does, because give him stuff. You're taking care of him. You start taking away his stuff, start messing with him, and he's going to turn on you like a snake. And for whatever reason God has in his sovereignty, he allows the devil to mess with Job. I think the reason is us, so that we can learn this lesson here. But, but the devil just wrecks his life. Interestingly, God gives Satan permission to do it, but throughout the book he says, I did it. God's not afraid of taking the responsibility for it. So Job loses everything. Family, wealth, reputation, physical health, everything's taken away from him. And Throughout the book, we see this conversation between Job and his friends. And his friends, who get a bad rap in the book, they give him some bad advice. But they're not wrong in the things that they say. They just don't know what God is doing. All of the book of Job is rooted in personal expectations. Job says, hey, I know I didn't do anything wrong. And if God will show up, you'll see. When God comes, I'll be vindicated, and you'll understand. God shows up in chapter 38. Check this out. Starting with verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Job might have been a little surprised by this. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without, no, without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you. And you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. God uses a lot of sarcasm in this passage. 
Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its, its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Jump ahead, because we go through this, and I'm just going to cut to the chase. Get to chapter 42. The next couple of chapters are God saying, All right, Job, sit down and shut up. Job's saying, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. And God's saying, I'm not done yet. We get to 42, and here's Job's response. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then after this, the Lord blesses Job, restores what was taken. The point of the story is pretty simple. God is not restricted to what you think. God's plan does not fit into your box. Never has, never will. It can't. We can't receive what God has for us while we're clinging to our own expectations. Understand from the story of Job, from what Jesus is saying to these uh, folks of his own generation, God does not shrink to the size of our expectations, nor does he rise to please us. God is sovereign and almighty. He is more than we can imagine. There's another box that we need to let go of. We mentioned the worldly focus. We've got to get our eyes off of all the stuff here. Lift our gaze heavenward. The things that last and are eternal are the things that we don't see. We need to get rid of our, our own understanding, leaning on our knowledge as if we are so wise that if God would listen to us, then everything would be good. We do that when we question God. How could God do this? Why does God let that happen? We need to set aside our personal expectations because we simply don't know. Fourth, we see this clearly in, in what happens here with the religious leaders and Pharisees. We need to set aside the box of our unrepentant heart. Our unrepentant heart. Verses 29 and 30. All the people, even the really, really egregious sinners... When they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. Because they'd been baptized by John. In other words, they had heard the message. They had turned from their way to God's way. They had humbled themselves and received the truth by faith. Now when they were baptized with John's baptism, it was for repentance. They didn't know Christ yet. They hadn't received the gospel. They weren't saved by it. But they were trusting in God's way, which would be revealed fully in Christ. But notice what verse 30 says. The Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. They had not been baptized by John. They didn't identify with that repentance. Now, does anybody really believe that the Pharisees and the religious leaders, as pious as they were, had no sins to repent of? 
Look at your own life. How many days do you get through without a sinful heart, a sinful attitude, where you do things you shouldn't? I can count the number of days I get through like that very simply. It's a big fat goose egg. Repentance is a regular, ongoing lifestyle. They should have heard the message that John proclaimed. John was just proclaiming what the, what the Bible already said. He said, here, you don't match up. Get right. But they didn't. They didn't repent of their sin. And you and I will be always permanently dissatisfied and disillusioned. We will not be able to receive what God is doing in reality if we are hanging on to the box of our unrepentant heart. If we're holding on to sin, it doesn't matter what sin it is. Sometimes we justify it by thinking, well, I've, you know, I've quit this and I've quit that, so this one doesn't matter so much, right? I've stopped... You know, stealing, robbing banks, murdering people. I, I no longer have, have that terrorist organization that I'm running. I, I, I turned my back on that. So all that gossip, that's okay. All that haughty, arrogant pride, that's fine. My thinking I'm better than anybody else, that, that's, that's great. Because I don't have those big headline sins. But that's going back to our human understanding. One little tiny drop of sin is sin. It's, we're not capable of standing before a holy God. And when we begin to think that our little sins don't matter that much, that some are, some are venial sins, that maybe they're not as big a deal, they're not going to take us to hell, they're not going to destroy us, then we have totally misunderstood who God is. There's no little sin. Because they all separate us from God. Now they're different in their consequences. Obviously, my lustful thoughts have different consequences than my lustful actions, but they all separate me from God. I have to be right about this. And if I'm going to be satisfied, if I'm going to have a life that experiences victory and peace and joy, then I've got to turn from my, the wickedness of my heart. I've got to say, search me, God, and know me. Lord, show me if there's any way in me that isn't lined up with what you expect. Strip me of that. We've got to choose to slay the baby dragons, no matter how cute we might think they are. Because those baby dragons of sin will destroy our lives. Lastly, they're trapped in a box that we need to let go of too. We can't be satisfied when we're holding on to the box of our religious tradition. Religious tradition is a box that we need to let go of as well. Now, don't get me wrong. Some traditions are beneficial. God praises tradition in its place, but tradition is a tool. And it can never be more than that. When we allow the tradition to become more important than what we see in God's Word, than what we see in the world around us as far as an area that needs our compassion, then that tradition is no longer a tool, it becomes an idol. It becomes a box that keeps us from being able to receive what God is doing. 
Now, some people have gone so far with that, they've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. I don't want to be trapped in religious tradition. I don't need church to be able to, to you know, have a relationship with Jesus. I said a prayer and so on. But they've missed out on the fact that God's Word commands it. Everything in the Old Testament and the New Testament calls those who are God's people to be God's people together. And there are things that God commands of His people to pray together, to read the Scriptures together, to sing together, to live out our faith with compassion and generosity and mercy and justice together. And to the extent that our traditions help foster that and lead us to what God is doing, that's great. But when we come up against what God is doing and our traditions become a roadblock, burn the box. It's not helpful. Don't set it aside to bring it back later. Throw it away. Religious traditions become a box that keep us from being able to take hold of God's plan for our lives. These Pharisees and, and religious leaders, they had expectations of what godly people looked like. And John didn't fit it. He was a wild man. He didn't look right. Had to have a screw loose. Must have had a demon in his head. Jesus didn't fit it because he was hanging out with those sinners over there. Can't be that. And that tradition trapped them and kept them from receiving it. Now why does all this matter? This is kind of a big deal. Ultimately, every sermon that, that we go through, every sermon that you hear, every book that you read, even every scripture that you read, we need to be asking, why does this matter? Why is this important? <clears throat> Here's the deal. If I'm clinging to my box and God's plans don't fit in my box, then I miss out on what God is doing. That means God is doing one thing and I'm doing another. I end up at odds with the creator of the universe. That's not a good place to be. I will always be dissatisfied with my life. I'll be living in tension because I'm at war with reality. What God's doing is reality, and what I'm doing is trying to fight against that. I need to understand that specifically when I do these things, I miss the life-saving, life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are created for a relationship with God that we can't have because of our sin. And we have no way of fixing that. So God, instead of waiting for us to fix it because we can't, God fixes it. He reaches down into our lives and He says, Okay, I'm going to take your sin on Myself. And in the person of Jesus Christ, He pays for our sin on the cross. It's a gift already paid for. You don't deserve it. You never have. You never will. You never can. Nor can I. And we miss out on that gospel through all of the things that we try to make fit in our box. Even as a believer, I can easily miss out on the experience of victory and joy and peace that are already mine in Christ by chasing after expectations formed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We get hung up on politics because we expect people to do certain things, and they don't. We get hung up on justice because we expect the world to work a certain way, and it doesn't. We expect that somehow, if we do this and that, that the following will, will result, and that doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes, the good die young. 
Sometimes honorable people are maligned. Sometimes I get away with what I shouldn't. And I get accused of what I didn't do. Because we live in a broken world. And our expectations are going to put us in a place of great despair. I give up the victory and joy and peace that are already mine in Christ if I'm chasing after expectations formed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. How does it affect my daily walk? How does this, how does this impact my every day? Great, I get it. I got the concept. God doesn't fit in my box. Super, now what? What does that do for me? First off, I need to be born again in Christ or nothing else matters. I'm just going to say that as bluntly as I can. For those of you who are here who are not 100% in, you're not 100% convinced that you, are, uh, that you are one with Christ, that you have a relationship with God that will take you beyond death, not hoping, not thinking maybe, not you know maybe my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, but I have been forgiven for all my sins because Jesus died for me. If you're not in that relationship, then nothing else matters. Got to get a hold of that. And you can do it right now today. Don't try to clean yourself up. That's God's job. He'll take care of that afterwards. Dead people can't make themselves better. We need to be alive. And we get that life in Him. Once we get to that place, then everything comes together. But if I'm trying to live life or relate to God according to my own understanding instead of His reality, I can't have that relationship. It comes at the end of myself. Second, for those of you who are already born again, already saved, once I'm alive in Christ as a child of God, I've been set free according to the reality of God's declaration and His adoption of me as His child. But if I'm still seeing life through the lens of my expectations, I don't see rightly. And I won't experience the freedom He has for me. Paul told the Galatian church, it's for freedom you've been set free. Man, why do you want to keep yoking yourself in this human tradition? Why do you want to fall back into legalism? Why do you want to try to earn your salvation and fit into a bunch of rules as if Jesus didn't die and wipe all that stuff out? You've been set free for the purpose of living free. And if I don't drop my box, I can't experience that freedom. If I do, then I can begin to live for Him. Not stuck in trying to make life fit into my expectations. It never will. But I can begin to live with the freedom that Christ already purchased by the Spirit that has driven us. And that freedom comes as I receive what God is really doing rather than what I expect Him to do. There is a... There's a song that we're going to do here in just a moment. It refers to a passage from the Old Testament that, that Paul mentions in Romans 9. If I'm, if I'm the pot, if I'm the clay, and God is the potter, I don't get to tell God how to make me. I don't get to tell God how to shape me. I just have to go along with it. As we wrap up the service today, I want to encourage you. Embrace being the clay and let the potter do what he's doing. Let go of your expectations and drop your box. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, 
this is such a short passage. And yet there's so much in it that impacts us every day. Every day, Lord, we're dealing with stress, most of which comes from life and what you're doing not fitting into our box. We expect things to go one way and they don't. We demand that you do what we think you should do rather than what you've decided. We rail against your sovereignty and we worship the idol of free will. And yet every time, (laughs) every time we get to make choices without your spirit driving us, we choose wrong. Lord, help us to understand that you are moving. You're doing something very real and very powerful. Help us to embrace that reality and to to recognize that there's a big difference between reality and what we expect of you. Teach us that salvation comes on your terms. There's no other way for us to approach you. We don't get to negotiate. You're holding all the cards. Lord, remind us that you want the best for us. That your plan for our lives is better than we can even take in. You are able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Lord, we give you glory and honor for that. Now, Father, receive our praise as together we commit to letting your hand dictate our lives as we surrender ourselves to the potter's hand. We pray this in Jesus' name.